You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. As many of you know, most of us here at the Master Photography Podcast are huge fans of Squarespace, and that's because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling prints or products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head on over to squarespace.com improve for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code improve to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and today I'm joined by Connor Hibbs. So glad you could join me for this episode, Connor. Yeah, really glad to be here, man. All right, I'm going to try not to cough too much during the episode, but it, the, the weather is super cold here in Utah, and that causes me problems with my asthma, so... We'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. All right. So I, I imagine uh, in Colorado, it's pretty cold too. Oh, yeah. it's It's been a fun one. <laughs> it's been below freezing in Utah for about two and a half weeks, I think. You know, we keep on, uh, don't need to make this episode of Weather Talk, episode, yes, yes. but we keep on going up and down in temperature here. And it's just the worst because it'll taunt me with a really nice day. And then the next day, the whole city is shut down because we have so much snow. Yeah. I'm like, can, can you just pick one? If it's freezing, it's freezing. If it's warm, it's warm. But don't taunt me with like, oh, kind of nice weather every once in a while. <laughs> I do love, though, that the skies are incredible. Sunrise and sunset oh, are yeah. awesome right now. It's just getting out there that's not so fun at the moment. <laughs> so I need, to, I need to do that, though. I need to get out there. But that's not, that's not what the show's about. So let's, let's move on to our topics. We're going to start off with one that um, that I kind of started on the Facebook group a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and we're going to talk about that, and then we have a few other listener Q&A kind of things that we're going to get to um, as well. But we're going to start with a discussion about keeper rate. And yeah. uh, Connor, have you ever tracked like your keeper rate from shoes, the percentage of shots that kind of survive your culling process and become keepers? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I find it interesting that you brought this up because I actually saw this. It wasn't even it wasn't you that posted this. There was somebody else that asked a question about a keeper rate, um, probably two three weeks ago. But I I absolutely do. I think that um, there there's a certain level of knowledge that can be gained through tracking your statistics um, of of the way that you're shooting and. I don't do it quite so much now as I used to. Um, I do, but it's it's less conscious where I'm I'm trying to hit a goal because I now shoot at a rate that I think is pretty acceptable, and I'm not trying to push for anything further beyond that in regards to just taking a quality photo versus something that is completely off in my settings, um, which was kind of the way that I started this. When I was first learning to shoot, I would pay attention to my ratio of, okay, what's in focus, what's not in focus. And yeah, once I started yeah. nailing focus more, then it was, okay, I'm going to move towards manual mode. What's in, what's a properly shot photo, properly balanced, what's improperly shot. And eventually 
got to the point where that was kind of the thing that led to me becoming technically proficient with my camera was having having that um, keeper rate in mind as I was shooting. And I found it really useful because as I'm trying new things, I can constantly pay attention to the keeper rate, quote unquote, not as in what photo is technically acceptable and which photo is technically bad. But all right, if I'm paying attention to headroom in my shots, which is one that I still remember from years ago, um, forcing myself to keep track of, if I'm paying attention to how much headroom I'm giving, I will, even though a photo is a keeper technically as far as the the camera settings and everything, and I won't throw it away, I will still track, okay, was this one one where I was actually paying attention to my headroom or was this a Uh, failure for that skill? Um, So I think that paying attention to your keeper rate is important, not only from the technical standpoint, but as you set goals for yourself, you can... Um, for me, when I'm calling, I'll have like my pick and reject uh, as my general technical good or bad, but then I will use different colors for my, all right, this was a keeper based on this goal that I set for myself. This was a reject based on that goal. And I can still track my statistics as I'm going through it. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, um, why I wanted to talk about today, I didn't, I'm not, I must've missed the other comment, but, uh, I posted into the master photography Facebook group and let's mention real quick right here that. If you are not a member of that, you listen to the episode, um, we'd love to have you come and join that Facebook group. Um, it's free to do it. There's no, there's a, it, it, all it takes is answering a question. When you, uh, <laughs> we, we need to keep the spammers and the bots out of there. Uh, we only want listeners of the show in the group. So we, um, we ask you to name a host as you're joining. And that's a clear indicator. Like, I don't know how many a week. It's a lot. There's a lot of requests to join the group that I get every week. Or that I see every week, we all kind of admin that all the hosts of the show do. Yeah, and uh, and I see a ton where yeah, they didn't put anything in there. So all right, you're out. <laughs> We're not going <laughs> to let you in. Um, so you have to put in a name that can be Jeff for me or Connor or there's others. But anyway, go join the group. You can search for it in Facebook. We'll have links in the show notes to it too, and you can be able to go and join our community that we built out there. It's kind of a, a fun place, I think, to do it. So what I did in that group is I posted a few shots from a high school basketball game that, that I went to and shot and uh, some of my best ones. And I also posted with the shots, my statistics from that. So what, what we did was my wife and I both go shoot local high school basketball games. Um, mostly the, the women's team, um, the men's team has some other photographers that, uh, that get in there too. So I don't, do, I don't shoot them as much, but uh, we shot the women's team. And uh, we both go and, and we take like opposite sides of the court, try to get as many chances as we can for getting the, the shot that we want. And, um, and we, we fire away through the event and then go, go back and I kind of pick the ones that I like the best. And um, what I hadn't done for a long time, especially with the basketball shoots, um, I, I have been so hurried to get to a few shots that I want to share like, I don't want to wait several days after the shoot to post some of the <laughs> shots because the kids, they'll have had another game by the time that happens if I wait for, for even a week. So um, they, they want to see the shots really fast. If they do, they'll, they'll like them and they'll share them and we get kind of a lot of viral publicity out of it, which is great. That's really fun to have. Um, but mostly, it's I, I love how excited the kids, the athletes get about these shots, the, the photos that, that we give them. So, um, so I, I have not been good or disciplined about doing my normal culling process with high school basketball games. 
And uh, it, I even have a photo taco episode, Culling Like a Pro, that people can go check out. And uh, it, <laughs> I hadn't been doing it. So really what I was doing was I'd load them up. I use embedded preview workflow process. If you don't know what that is, you can find a photo taco episode about that too. But um, So I'm in the library module. I'm looking at the shots. And I find the ones that I like the best, like really fast. Go through, find five, six, seven of them, whatever it is, and, and post them. And then um, I eventually do go back and kind of look for some others, but I don't. I I wasn't following my actual culling process. And that's yeah. going in the library module, and I use a star system. Um, so a, a one is like, yeah, this isn't worth anything, <laughs> which is a lot of the shots from the game. A, a two on the stars is this is a decent shot. Like especially when I'm looking at basketball, the two means this may be a shot that the athlete's going to like. It may not be worth sharing myself on social media. It's not a tremendous um, action shot or anything, but the athlete themselves, they might really like it. They Having a shot of themselves in like a defensive stance or something that's maybe not super exciting, but they might like it. And it's it's in focus and, and kind of at least worth the athlete having. And then a three is this one is really good and like a really nice action shot that uh, I want to make sure I post in social media uh, stuff like that. So that's as I'm going through, and it's really simple to make that decision, which is on purpose. That's why I'm not using like five stars or or something like that because I want it to be a decision I can make in less than a second as I look for the at the photo, and then I can go through thousands of them really really fast and call them and and find the photos. And it actually takes less time to do that than what I was doing, not being disciplined and going through my calling process. <laughs> if I would have done that. So I've decided in 2019, I got to fix this. I got to make sure I go through my calling process. In our in our shoot that we did, we took 1,364 photos at the high school basketball game. And I went through them and 188 of them were two stars or better. And 57 of them were three stars. So uh, that's a keeper rate of 13% for two or, two or above and 4% were the actual like <clears throat> really good shots I wanted to make sure I shared on social media. Which is fifty-seven of them. That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot of shots. But <laughs> and I'm going to talk about. I, I have kind of a different objective than than you might. Ha- a lot of photographers might have as I go shoot this, and we'll talk about that in a second. So I wanted to do this a lot in large part just to try to make myself more disciplined in calling. I can't get those statistics unless I call. Unless I go yeah. and do it. So so that's helping me to make sure that I call them. And I do want to watch over time. Like, I I don't really know how that compares to other shoots. This was the first time I've done this ever with high school basketball. I did it with some other types of photography that I was doing, but I'd never done it with high school basketball and and the shoots that I do there. So I kind of want to see, I want that to be markers of, am I getting better at this? Um, Like, as I was going through them, there were a few action shots that would have been awesome, but they sadly were not in focus. (laughs) You know? Or... um, or I made a mistake in um, the first half of the game. I lowered my shutter speed down to take pictures of the um, flag ceremony, the anthem, having the anthem, singing the anthem yeah. and of the team. I got in a nice position. I got some some fun shots of them all with their hands over their hearts and, and doing the, the anthem. And it's cool. It's, it's I love that kind of a shot. I forgot to raise my shutter speed back up. Ugh. So I Ugh. shot the whole first half <laughs> with a shutter speed that was half what I wanted. And uh, and that was not good. 
I ended up having to throw away a bunch of shots. So that that made my keeper rate go down quite a bit in this particular shoot. And um, and will make me more conscious <laughs> as I do this <laughs> going forward. I, I, I may not even choose to lower my shutter speed because I don't want to forget it. I don't know. I don't know how I'll handle it. But anyway, I, I want to see over time. I want to use this as a metric to try to see, am I getting better? And, and help have it force me to think about this. How am I going to improve it so that I can get better at this? Um, and and that's, that's part of what I was going to do it. Now, also, as I shared this, we had a um, comment from David Taylor in the Facebook group. And, and he said that he's shot NBA for nine years. And his evaluation of those numbers were... Those that's far too many shots, and the keeper rate is really poor, which I'm sure is true. <laughs> I mean, he shot NBA for nine years; he probably knows what he's talking about. And yeah. <laughs> um, and and I'm sure that if if nine, I'm hoping that nine years from now, even though I probably won't be doing much of any NBA shooting, I, I don't know. We'll see, but I doubt it. Um, I'm hoping that I can improve these numbers um, by technique, by the camera gear I'm using. Whatever it is, I, I, I hope I'm going to be able to improve it. I just, I feel like I'm kind of learning. This was actually, I went and counted just as we were preparing for this podcast episode. I counted, I've only done 13 high school games. This is my 13th that I just did. All so right. um, it's over about th- four years, I think. I've shot 13 games. So it's not that many. I'm not shooting every single game they're at. I don't have time for that. So um, I, I show up to a, a select few. Usually d- the team they're playing has a lot to do with my being there. And then just the time to the night that they're playing and it doesn't work into my schedule. So I, I don't shoot that many a year and this was only my 13th one. So um, I have enough practice now that I'm getting decent results that are worth sharing. And, and that's super fun to have all that. The, the parents and the athletes, they love it that the, they yeah. get these images. It's really kind of fun. And, and I just love the challenge of it. I, I love the atmosphere too. They, we've, we've shot when they played their rival a few times now, and that's just so much fun to be there and, and capture some of the reactions that they have. Um, those are often even more uh, something the kids like better, the athletes like better than their action shots are the shots where they're um, reacting like they had a really good play and they're they're doing like the chest bump or you know whatever they're celebrating that they that something happened and we we try to get those shots too and it's it's really fun to do it so um, anyway I, I I'm hoping I can track this over time I can improve it um, and and hopefully I can come to um, something that's more in line with what David Taylor was mentioning as he shoots NBA games we'll see did did he say what his no, percentage in, in was fact, someone that? else someone else had posted and said. Well, have you? So he, initially, all he said was, "That's too many shots, not enough keeps," and uh, and he didn't share that he was he'd shot NBA for nine years. And then someone else posted and said, "Well, have you ever shot basketball?" And because <laughs> they didn't think that was too too out of line, and yeah. uh, and he said, "Yeah, nine years NBA." And then they said, "Well, so what rate do you get?" And he didn't respond. So I don't know what. Ah, shoot. I don't have a target there. Um, and I really don't care, you know, what other people have. It's just my own metric. I'm I'm comparing myself to myself, not I don't yeah, care what other exactly. people have. And um and I just want to track it over time and as a way to make me very disciplined about calling as a primary thing, and then just am I getting better at this? I I hope that those numbers will improve as I get better, so I don't forget to set my shutter speed the right for a whole half, you know that <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> Another comment that came on this thread in the Facebook group was, "Why do you care?" <laughs> Why do you, why does it matter? I mean, obviously, I have this this incentive of trying to see if the numbers show that I'm getting better at it. 
But they're they're pointing out more like, well, it doesn't really matter. Like you're not paying for these shots. It, it doesn't. Yeah. You can shoot, you know, two thousand shots in a game, and and okay, it may cost you a little time in calling to weed through the like really bad shots and find the good ones. Sure, there, there's that. There's storage space that you'd have to pay for. But if you call, then you can delete the really crappy ones and and recover that storage space. It doesn't. Memory cards are big enough. That's not usually a problem. Okay, you're you're putting a little bit of wear and tear on your shutter by taking that many more shots. But other than that, it it doesn't really cost you anything. Not like it did back in the film days. <laughs> yeah. Right. That then, yeah, absolutely. You had to make every shot count, and so so it's kind of a valid point, and brings it's kind of the spray and pray kind of discussion. So is spray and pray always bad? Is it something that that is uh, is okay to do, especially in the basketball case. You're shooting live sports indoors. It's dark. That is like really difficult shooting conditions to to be able to get good shots. So spray and pray does is it better? What do you think, Connor? What what, what do you think about spray and pray? Gosh, you, you know, I I think it really depends on the the situation. Like the the thing that I'm kind of taken aback in this whole conversation is that in the NBA you're not spraying and praying. Oh no, you can't because because. But to me, I'm like, oh man, I would, I would, I understand that you have to get everything out quickly. But man, I, I, I'm not talking about shooting for thirty or forty frames. But any moment that I saw, I would probably be rattling three or four frames off of if I thought there was like a really good moment happening. Um, but I know that I have a tendency when, when there is a, a situation where it is this moment um say in weddings when it's the first kiss oh yeah i spray and pray like crazy <laughs> for that moment because i do not want to miss it um and i want to have three or four different options to get the best of those right ones. right um but i'm also i'm also not under a time crunch to be able to to turn stuff out um with a wedding in the same way that you are with nba of course i want to not have tons and tons of stuff to shoot through so the majority of the day i am shooting with a lot of intention but when it comes to something where there is that one moment i have a tendency to lean towards the all right i'm going to hold my shutter down i i'm going to be intentional in my composition in the way that i'm i'm tracking everything but i also want to make sure i don't miss the moment I, I think that that's part of the reason why I track my statistics, though, is that I know that I have a tendency that, that I get kind of casual as I'm shooting, uh -huh. and I will get lazy and shoot more and more, and especially if I'm, there are times when I'll have a 10-hour day shooting um, a corporate, no, not a corporate event, but um, large stuff that I do for the military base that I work with, um, or other things where I'm out for a long time, and I start getting lazy, and I just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, and that's when my statistics matter to me a lot, because that's when I know, oh, if I'm not paying attention to keeping my stats lower, I'm going to go crazy with it and then have a really bad keep to loss ratio. Um, or at least I'll have, it, it's hard to define in that instance because I'll have 15 photos that are all good photos as far as the technical side goes, but really only one that is the moment that I was looking for. Uh -huh. So in that instance, it's not a keeper, even though I did everything right beyond the waiting for that perfect moment, I guess. Okay, so I, when when people start out, when they're beginning photographers, you really don't have an option. Spray and pray is what you do, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know. There's all these buttons, all these settings, all these things, menus. There's so much to it that when you're just starting out, that's kind of what you have to do is spray and pray. You're, you're going to yeah. take a lot of shots and hope that one works. <laughs> and and I, I think that that's part of the learning process. Um, and, and established 
photographers, people who are much further down the path of mastering photography, they may not remember the time when they had that. That was it may have been so long ago. They're like, I, I can't remember really going through that. But um, but I, I think it's an important part of learning uh, when yeah. you're getting started. Then taking a lot of pictures, I, I remember doing this very, very well because it wasn't very long ago for me. In fact, I still have lots of moments like this today. As I go into new genres of photography, I revert back to I got to spray and pray and, and see what works and what doesn't. That's kind of the key, though, is you're not staying in spray and pray. Yeah, learning learning enough so. to know how to get out of it so that you um, you feel like you know how to use do the technical things with almost out almost without thinking about it and you know like uh, composition wise or positioning like in basketball that's one of the key things for me is i got to work on my positioning i know that i know i'm i'm not getting the shots that i really really want because i'm not in the right position to get them and i'm i'm yeah. honing in on that i'm getting better at it it means getting tighter which makes it even harder I don't have this wide angle. If you if you get in tighter, you don't have the you know as much margin for error either on the focus or on the composition or making sure that you don't like cut off their their head or part of the <laughs> basketball or whatever you know. There's yeah. it, there's a lot to it, and I'm learning how to do it. So uh, so spray and pray is kind of something I've I've had to go to again. I also think though the action has something to do with it here. Um, you know they they're. When a basketball player is driving in the lane and, and they're running, rushing towards the basket, they're moving pretty fast. Even the women are. Yeah. And I, I want to catch the key moment where they're in like the, the apex, the highest point of their jump, just releasing the ball. And maybe maybe um, others can, can know how to time that perfectly so they only have to take one frame. I don't know. Maybe I'll get there someday. But today... I have to do it for, you know, high speed continuous for a second and take 11 frames <laughs> and, well, and, and, I, and I hope think I you get could, the one. You can even make an argument there that um, by the time a person is playing in the NBA, they will have technique down to a way that you have more predictable actions happening when things are happening versus um, the more amateur a person goes, the more wild and reckless their, their actions <laughs> are going too. to be. So capturing that one that looks really good or that moment when it's the best, when the form isn't quite perfect, might actually take more shots because uh, the, the form isn't quite there. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to stick up for you here and say, <laughs> yeah, NBA, that's easy. It's the high school stuff that's really hard. Well, I'd love to try it because I have no idea. I've never shot an <laughs> NBA game. I've never shot college. I'd love to do either one of those just to compare and see how it is but uh but yeah it's it's i, I today and i'm not sure i'm ever going to get away from high speed continuous taking you know firing off quite a few frames to get the action shot i i just think yeah. that's my best chance to capture it um but we'll see we'll see as i continue to get better at it and it you know if, if we have basketball shooters out there that um want to comment love to have you say in the comments and when we post this episode in the facebook group Fire away. Let me know like what your experience is. How do you approach it? And uh, I, I'm interested to, to kind of know. Um, there, is yeah. no, there is another reason that I take a lot of shots, though. And so this, this might be a contributing factor, too, uh, and why it's really different from maybe someone who is shooting NBA games or uh, shooting for a newspaper or some kind of a media outlet or whatever it might be. Um, because they're looking generally for... They want, for sure, the like epic shot from the game. What... Like the turning point that maybe one one team the game versus the other and something like that. They want that shot to post with an article or something talking about the game. Yeah. And so if that's the shot you're looking for, 
Um, yeah, you may have to shoot quite a few during the game just to make sure you get that shot, but you you don't need a ton of shots to get there. I don't. That's not my objective when I go to the game. I'm there to shoot for the team, and I'm not. So I'm not creating an article. I'm not. I'm not even doing like a specific social media blog post or anything like that. I am shooting so that these athletes have pictures of themselves playing basketball. And yeah. I want to capture all of them playing basketball. And not all of them are doing things that are, you know, really cool in the game. <laughs> There's people that are like more defensive players. They're not going to have shots of them driving to the lane or shooting a three or some of the more offensive, exciting kinds of shots. Um, yeah. I've had some athletes that have just loved the uh, me having a picture of them in their defensive stance, waiting for the offensive players to get down the court. And this look of determination that's on their face, like, I am going to stop you. They love that shot. That's not a shot that almost that's ever going to really make it into most other publications or outlets. Or, yeah, it's, or not, it's not your headline image at no. all. So I'm shooting a lot of shots like that. I'm shooting, like we said, a lot of shots of the audience or the, the crowd that's there or the, the athletes celebrating and high-fiving each other. And, and those contribute to how many shots I'm taking. And uh, yeah. so it, I, I have... I don't know that I want to get down to like a 90% keeper rate or something like that. That just seems ridiculous at this point anyway. But I, I think I want to track it over time and just have it be something that's going to help me to get better. Well, and and as I was, I've kind of mentioned, I really do think that it just, it depends on the situation. I, me shooting in studio when I'm looking for getting a headshot or something like that, I could do a 100% shoot, keeper shoot rate because I am going to take one, like, I don't do this, but I could take one <laughs> photo of a person after having given, given them lots of instruction on how to pose and getting sure. it right perfect and take the one photo and say, all right, you're out of here, 100%, I'm done. But there's, there's well... There are times when you say, okay, well, maybe it's better if I take a few more shots of this individual and let them have a choice and they'll be happier. And customer service, from my standpoint, that matters to me. So sure. they'll feel like my customer service is better. And yeah, my shoot ratio goes down, but it's still going to be pretty high. Well, it, um, it, isn't there something too like the person gets a little more comfortable after you've taken a few as, shots? Yeah, as you've been shooting a bit. Yeah. Like it, it, it really depends. And for, if I'm shooting an event, an outdoor event, um, We'll say I, I shoot the Fourth of July. That there's a big celebration that they have there, and the marketing team for the company that I shoot this giant event for, they send me shots that it's not a hey you need to get these. It's just this is the kind of stuff we're looking for for our advertising materials for next year's event. So there are times when I will post up next to a bounce house or something like that, and I will shoot maybe 150 or 200 shots as kids are jumping in, hopping around and moving through because I'm sure. looking for the right moment. And in that instance, that's a, a 0.5%. If I've taken two, 200 shots for that particular shot that I'm looking for, and I get one shot that I would say is really like the keeper in terms of what I want them right. to have, that's, that's a 0.5% shooting rate. So it really depends on the situation. I think that it's just important to, to have those, those metrics, have that statistic there to help you gauge how you're doing through things and understanding that sometimes for certain situations your shoot ratio is just bound to be a bit lower than right, other situations right. it's totally okay so i mean i i can look at my shoots and see what kind of shoot it was and see what kind of ratios i was shooting with and tell you a lot about how i was doing that day uh, it 
not only will tell me, okay, this is this kind of event because I've shot whatever, 200 photos of it versus 2,000 photos, um, but it, it'll also tell me, all right, I, I'm shooting around 75%, 80%. That's around where I tend to go when I'm shooting outdoor sessions. Um, it's a bit higher if I'm shooting in, in a... Um, studio setting and if it's an event or something like that it it might be significantly lower and just knowing myself and knowing where I sit for different types of work can really be helpful and can be helpful as I'm going through and saying all right this is a two-day event and the first day I turned around um, with a pretty poor shoot ratio well tomorrow I know what I need to do to make that better right right and that's where it comes into play it's not just it's not really useful to you after the fact for that shoot that you've already done it's useful in the future and for setting goals and and progressing further so I think it's a great thing to do and it's a great thing to keep track of even though yeah technically it doesn't cost us anything to shoot a bit more but it can be a tool to help us get better and that's that's how I'm intending to use it a tool to help me get better it has nothing to do with it costing me anything or not it's I think it's going to be a tool that's going to help me improve. So I'm going to yeah, do definitely so. All right. We're going to take a quick break here to thank a sponsor. And then we're going to talk about pricing and bookkeeping and strobes to speed lights. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace, just like most of us here at Master Photography. We love Squarespace, and that's because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project. So whether you're looking to start a new photo business, showcase your portfolio, publish blog posts, sell products or prints, or whatever it is you want to do, Squarespace is the tool for you. They have beautiful templates that were created by world-class designers, and you have the ability to customize those templates with just a few clicks, so you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace also has a powerful e-commerce tool that lets you sell anything online, and they have analytics that will help you grow your site in real time. And the best part, in my opinion, is that everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, so you don't have to spend time building a second mobile website for SEO purposes. Buying domains through Squarespace is simple, and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. So head on over to squarespace.com slash improve for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code improve to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash improve, offer code improve. Okay, Connor, let's talk about pricing. I think we get questions like this a lot, but that's okay. I think it's an important discussion to have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, Definitely you know, we, so. we keep having experiences and keep doing things and changing. So it's it's good to refresh it and come up and you know, say what we're doing now. I, yeah. I, I don't think we're going to ever be stagnant on any of this stuff. So no, I it, it's so good either. to revisit. All right. So here's a question from Susie Parrish over in the Facebook group. And she said, I'm really struggling with how to start out my pricing. I don't feel like I can charge a regular price yet. And I want to do IPS in-person sales. When do I really start? So when, not where, but when do I really start? I've just been doing stuff for free and was told I should start charging. I can't decide how to charge for the sessions and files and prints, how to what how files to include. Uh, just can't figure this out. When I do IPS, I won't be selling many files, but I feel like since I'm trying to get my foot in the door, continue to practice, etc., I should be extremely competitive and get lots of files. Ugh. Please help. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm still where Susie's at. <laughs> I hate in-person sales. It is not something I want to do at all. And I know it means I leave a lot of money on the table. I totally get that. And I understand that for people who are going to make a real go at, at making, doing photography for a living, this is really critical, especially for like a portrait photographer. 
yeah, a pretty important absolutely. aspect of it. I just personally, that's not, I, I like the capturing part, the creating part. I don't really care about the printing part. I've talked about this a lot. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm, I like, I'm fine just sharing the digital images and saying, yeah, good luck to your client. And they, for the clients that I have, um, they like that process too, which is fine. They're, you know, we're both getting what we want and, and we're good. But that doesn't fit for everybody. And I'm glad you're on, Connor, so that you can speak to it because my, I, I don't know what to tell her here. So what do you have? What do you think for Susie? <sighs> so, so the, the topic of pricing is always, really kind of complex because there are a lot of different approaches to pricing. I, I, I think that the first and most important thing for you to do is to come to a determination of what do you want photography to be in your life? Um, like how much of your income are you trying to make off of this? Is it going to be a, a hobby, a side hobby? Is it something that you're not really even terribly concerned with as far as making money goes? It seems like in this instance, this is maybe a, a secondary income, if not a primary income. And and when it comes to that, it's important to, to start looking at the numbers and looking at what you will ultimately need to make in order to have the living that you want to have from photography. And then kind of reverse engineer from there where your pricing should be. So right. once you say whatever the dollar amount is, it, it could be I'm going to go absurdly high just because I don't want you to think that this is the pricing you should <laughs> personally choose. Okay. Um, but if you say, you know, I need to make $750,000 a year in order to take home my $30,000 a year salary because I, I'm totally happy living on that, but I have ridiculous costs for all okay. of my things okay. doing. So ridiculously high gross, ridiculously low net from that. Um, but in that instance, you'd say, okay, well, in order to make $750,000 gross, how many clients am I going to be able to serve? And how much does that equal out to each individual client? So if you say, well, I can work with 400 clients, probably not. <laughs> Big number there. I, yeah. 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 I, I, I want to keep you practical and say, all right, you're probably not going to be shooting with multiple clients a day, every single day that you have available. So you say, all right, what's a reasonable number of clients? Just depends on what you're shooting. Um, but we'll say somewhere in the between 10 and 40 or 50 clients in a year okay. that you could acquire. And then you divide your total number of gross needed by the number of clients that you have. And then you have an idea of what your pricing per client needs to be. From there, you can say, all right, well, is what I'm providing worth this much money? Right. If not, then you need to consider, all right, how can I make it worth that much money? Or how can I maybe bring down the cost of my gross to maybe make it a little bit more reasonable? There's, there's a lot of factors that kind of go into determining what your ultimate price should be. But I think having an understanding of what you should be charging per client in order to have your financial goals met is the first important step. From there, since you're just developing your business, you need to take a step back and say, all right, well, maybe I don't start charging that full amount right now. And I find clients that I can give a reason for giving a discounted yeah, rate like while I build a portfolio. Right? Yeah, exactly. Say nor normal value is yes. whatever that normal value yes. is discounted to this. So that way, when that client comes to you the first time, they're not coming to you with the mindset of, oh, this always costs right. me $20, not hundreds of dollars. You say, oh, this would normally cost me $1,000 and now it's 20 because of whatever reason you've come up with right. is the reason you're doing that. Um, and then they have in their mind the value of what it's actually worth. When they come back to you, they will expect to be paying that full amount. I think one of the biggest issues that, that people have in pricing is not figuring out what they're, what they should be making eventually in order to meet those financial goals are. And then they charge 
too little. And then they find out, oh, you know what? I'm charging too little. And then the next time their client comes back, they say, hey, by the way, I'm 200% the price I was last time because I realized that's more in line with what I need to be <laughs> right. right now. And the client is taken aback and like, crazy, yeah. no. No um, longer so, a client so, at that point. <laughs> so I, I think your first step and anyone's first step is to determine how much you want to make, how many clients you're going to be able to serve, and and figuring out if that if those numbers are compatible with what you're trying to output. And then from there, you just discount until you can actually charge that full amount. In your instance, um, talking about should you be giving lots of files to be competitive right now for a certain price, I, I think that that's, that's maybe a part of the factor that you have in here. So right. if you say, all right, ultimately... I would like to do headshot sessions where I'm charging $250 per headshot for group volumes and it's $250 for a single image. Well, maybe you can work your way up to that by charging $250 and giving 10 photos to begin with because you're going to have a better value than somebody else that's giving headshots. Realistically, a person doesn't need that. Maybe it's not the best example for headshots, but we'll <laughs> say for, for portraits or whatever else. Um, and then as as your skill grows, as your your the value of each individual image goes up in your mind, you can real instead of saying, all right, well, now I'm going to make those 10 images $500, you technically might be doing that, but you would say, instead, I'm going to give five images for my $250, and then if I have a return client that says, well, you know what, you gave me 10 last time, I have a little bit more leeway where I say, all right, this isn't killing me to give away a little bit more for that client. That's that's up to your own personal discretion as to whether or not you do that, but uh, that's a way to kind of over-deliver for a while and then pair back to the final deliverables that you want at the price point that you want. But the alternative is to just say, all right, well, I always want to be delivering five photos. So it would be two, whatever, $250, whatever I said for those five photos, um, but discounted right now to $100. So there's two different ways. You can either discount from giving a higher number of photos for the price that you ultimately want to get, or just charge a lower price for the ultimate number of deliverables that you want to give, and then work your way up towards those things being in line with where you ultimately would like them to be. How about the difference between like a a setting fee versus the the in-person sales prints and stuff? What, what do you do you do you do it that way, Connor? Um, so I no, I don't. <laughs> okay. I think that I'm I'm a little bit on the weird side. So I kind of do a hybrid in person sales. It really depends on on what the subject matter is. So for headshots, I have a flat fee that I charge, um, okay. but it's something that I I don't really expect people to pay upfront. I uh-huh. like people paying for an actual delivered thing. Um, so whether it's in-person sales or it's a headshot where it's just a flat fee for a digital file, one way or the other, I I want them to be aware of what they're paying before they've bought the thing. So I don't charge any kind of sitting fee upfront personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that really just kind of comes down to you because I, I, it comes down to the individual because there are people that do in-person sales that will still charge a sitting fee and do in-person sales afterwards. Right. When you're doing that, your pricing model is broken down kind of halfway between I want some of my money, the ultimate money that I want off of this client or need to make from this client is going to come from the sitting fee. And then the other portion is going to be from what I hope to sell to that client um, based on on well, your statistics of how well you can sell and what you know you need to charge. And 
other people would say no like do everything in print sales never charge a sitting fee because right, that right. won't get them in the door and other people would say no i want to charge all of that money up front and then i can be really generous in the way that i give and just give tons of digital files i think the way that you get there it's kind of more up to the individual and the way that you feel about your business and and what makes you comfortable in my mind the reason i've taken the philosophy that i've taken is because i really don't like the idea of people paying for a thing that they don't know what it is yet so i don't like charging money up front because they don't know if they are actually going to like the work and the thing is when when the person comes to me not that this has happened ever i don't think actually now that i think about it but if a person were to come back to me and say you know what i am really just unhappy with the work that you've done i i will stand by that i will absolutely say well then you're not going to pay for it you're not going to uh-huh. get anything for right it. I, like sorry but no you don't get to use my my images after you've said you don't like them right but if that were to happen i would say all right well how can i make this right do you want to do another shoot right um like i i think in that instance i am actually going to well i would be showing that client that customer service is key to me and that i was willing to go above and beyond I'm, I know for a fact that I've had people that weren't 100% thrilled or didn't get exactly what they were hoping for out of it and still paid me because they said, well, you, it wasn't exactly what I wanted, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted right. until I've seen this. And you've worked really hard on this. So here's the, <laughs> so it's something that having some sort of guarantee like that, I, I think makes me feel more comfortable in that I know that I am serving my client well, but I also know that realistically human nature is going to tend towards people not not doing bad by you like they want to be uh, patrons of your work and and being generous and being nice like they're not going to take advantage of that for the most part yeah. i'm sure i will have somebody down the line that does but um that's that sorry i rambled there okay so just to give Susie another idea um yes. I, i'll describe kind of how i worked it this is not for everybody so <laughs> i know like it's it's a hobbyist perspective it's my perspective on it and and it's a model that i've been running for several years now and i love it for what it does for me it is not for everybody so i get that I preface it right up front that i'm not suggesting this is the way to do pricing um but it's worked really well for me and it's an idea maybe something that a beginner or something that wants to get into it maybe it's a baby step they can take forward and then kind of adjust from there I'll, I'll just put yeah. it out there as a way to, to kind of get started because I'm probably perpetually going to be in the I'm just getting started <laughs> phase of, <laughs> of portrait photography. So um, so here, here's how I do it. Uh, I do do a sitting fee. I want to get you know a, a certain amount out. Um, I have to make sure that when at the end of the year when I'm the tax man comes, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in bookkeeping again, uh, I have enough from my shoots that I can pay for that. So yeah. my goal is actually really just to make a tiny bit of money over what I'm going to have to pay for taxes. That's how I'm pricing things. That's what I want out of it. That is not what everyone wants, but that's what I want. That's how I want to structure it. So I do have a sitting fee that I've kind of figured out based on the past couple of years what it is I need to charge per session so that I can make that happen. Um, yeah. And then what I the way I look at it is, uh, or what we tell our clients is, you hired us to take as many shots as you guys can handle in two hours. That's what we're going to do. We, we go out on site. I don't do it in, in studio or anything like that. We're, we're outdoors. Uh, I've incorporated Flash into it now, which has tremendously helped. I get way better images, and the, the clients are far happier with it. I have to do much less in editing, too. It's, it's, it's coming becoming a, a better process for everybody. Um, Overall, as I get more experience doing it, but they have hired me to push the shutter button on the camera for two hours. That's the way I look at it. 
And therefore, they get every image that we take. They can have them all. (laughs) That's fine. I mean, I'm not really super concerned about protecting a brand. I'm not trying to make my living from this. I know there's concerns about that for some people. They have it. But that's the way I've chosen to look at it. I push the shutter button for two hours. I know how to set the settings and set up the flash. But you hired me. You're paying me a sitting fee to come and push the button for two hours. They don't always go. It rarely has it gone two hours. Most of the time, yeah. families are done in an hour. <laughs> so I can, <laughs> I can say we're going to go two hours. And then they think they break down the, the sitting fee cost by hour. And like, that's not too bad. That's that's a decent rate. That's fine. And uh, and I think it, it helps them to want to do it. And then we get out there and like, yeah, after an hour, everyone's just like done. No, no more. I'm finished. And uh, and then they have lots of shots to choose from. We keep taking shots. I've shown them along the way. I deliver all of them, all of the images. Well, most I should say. If there's one that's out of focus, or there's one that like was exposure test shots, I take those out. They don't care about those. Yeah. But I so I'll take out those. The obvious, like yeah, no one's going to want these. But but you give them all the keepers. But I give them of all of the possible. Yeah. So if, if we have ten of the same pose and the person's you know slightly moving around a little bit or has slightly different smile. Uh, I let them pick which of the smile they like the best. I, I'm not going to pick it anyway. So that's just how I've chosen to do it. I deliver all of them through through my Zenfolio website. They get proof versions, which are deliberately sized, really, really small. Um, they can review it on their phone. They can tell me, and then for for the sitting fee, they get the two hours, and they get up to ten photos that I will edit. So they can pick any of the ten that they like the best, and I will go and professionally edit then those ten photos. And uh, and then if they want more edited, and this happens almost every time, I give them the 10 shots. They get them back. They're like, oh, wow, that looks so much better now that they're actually edited. Uh, I want you to do this one and that one and the other. And I tell them up front, it's $5 per edit on uh, beyond the 10. And, yeah. And they almost always pick another 10 or 15 or 20 <laughs> that they want <laughs> edited out of the shoot. And so that's how it's working for me. That's what I'm doing. I, there's no in-person sales. I just deliver the images that, that I edit to them. I have had a few clients say they want me to print it because they don't want to deal with that. And that's fine. I go and I do the prints and, and, uh, so, but I'm not actively seeking out. I just offer it as I'm working with them saying, if you want me to do prints for you, I can do that. Um, yeah. And, and that's it. I, I would I would argue that that part of that process has almost an element of in person sales. It's just not in person though. Okay. The fact that you offer a certain set amount for this price that you're you're offering, and then you say, okay, well, if you want more, then you're you're able to buy more. Sure. That is an element of what you would do with in person sales. The difference with in person sales just being that, all right, you come to my studio. Usually, it's emphasizing print over digital. Right, I think right. It's better to emphasize print over digital in my mind. Whenever I'm shooting, if a person, if I'm shooting something that is meant for print, I will encourage as much print as possible. And part of the way that I do that is say, hey, if you make a purchase over a certain dollar amount, you're going to get all of the digital files. I, like, right. I'm happy to give them to you. They're not going to do anything for me. I don't want you to feel like you're losing out. This is just for you to find the, the images that you want hanging on your wall or want in your album. 
so in that that instance, you're saying, all right, I'll give you everything. But, well, who wants unedited photos? Right, right. You're saying, tiny, I'm giving you everything. Tiny but unedited real, photos. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm giving you everything, but really, you're paying me for the stuff that you want. And that is still sales. It's just sales that's much okay. more heavily priced towards the, the session fee over the sales side. You're charging $5 an edit versus making all of your money on your edits on the back side. So even then, it's just a matter of how much of one are you going to do over the other. There would be some people that would say, all right, me, quote unquote, editing is going to be running through Lightroom. I don't do anything after that. Right. And I will send full resolution files to, to the person for every single image that I've run through Lightroom that comes out the other end. You can have everything. You can do whatever you want with it. Good to go. I make my money on session fees. And that would be what I think you, you originally were describing yourself as, as being a session photographer, is I'm not going to charge for anything on the back end where... I think most people fit somewhere within the hybrid model where you're doing some sales on the back end, some session fee on the front end, um, and some iteration there where you break down essentially the percentage of what you're wanting to make from that client somewhere in between that before and after. Sure. So yeah, Susie, you're going to have to decide what's going to work for you. <laughs> that, that's kind of, I, I hate, you know, when it gets that way, the, the advice to, to provide, there's not a fixed answer. You live in a different spot than we do. You have different clients than we do. You're at a different place in your photography journey than we are. And you're going to have to figure out kind of how to get started, what you're going to do. Maybe you can take a conglomeration of the ideas we just talked about and pack, you know, put it into practice of what's going to work for you. That's yeah, that's how it's going definitely. to be. And, and probably change over time. I, I will probably change my approach over time. I may decide at some point I want to make more money off of photography and, and change how I'm doing it. We'll see. I yeah. All right, let's talk about bookkeeping. Closely related to Susie's question here. Uh, this one comes from Brianna Miller, again on the Facebook group. She said, I'd love to hear your workflow on bookkeeping and how to stay on top of it each month with what programs. And then Veronica Behrman added, I hope it's Behrman, um, including what software you use for invoicing and billing and how you accept credit cards. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk first, Connor, and then you can give the real answer. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, so again, hobbyist here, not trying to make this my profession. I'm, not try I'm trying to break even with the tax guy. That's my goal. And most of you will not have that, which is fine. But for me, it's really simple. Um, I, we, we don't, we're not, definitely not going to invest in software. We're not going to invest in, uh, in anything that costs money here. This needed to be free. So yeah. we use a Google spreadsheet in Google Docs. And we just track in there our expenses and our income from photography. So uh, I have all the monthly expenses, like we have Google G Suite charges so that we can have like a legit email address that doesn't end in gmail.com. Uh, we have Adobe subscriptions for the editing. We have a Zenfolio subscription. We just talked about how I deliver my files through Zenfolio website to, uh, to my clients. Um, and then I track like any camera gear we buy, which isn't usually a whole lot. We're on this hobbyist budget and, and I don't spend much every year on camera gear. I'm, I'm, I'm really, well, we'll see. Maybe the 7D Mark III will make me buy something this year. But um, for the most part, you know, it's some SD cards or a battery or something here and there. It isn't very expensive. And, uh, and I track that too. Then uh, we put our, whatever shoots we do, we get, we, whatever we charge there. So we get our session fee or sitting fee, sorry, and our, whatever they pay for the extra edits like I just talked about. And we record that in the spreadsheet. We keep 30% of that off for taxes. Just right off the bat, we're going to make sure that we have 30% of all of the shoots we do for tax purposes in case we have to pay money on it. 
And then um, and then the rest of it usually goes to paying for these expenses I just talked about where I'm trying to break even. Um, that's all we do. Then we print out that spreadsheet at that uh, tax time. We take it to our accountant. He puts it in his software and spits out, you know, what we're going to do for the for taxes. And that's the part I can highly recommend. Like that part costs money and it is worth every penny, <laughs> every single <laughs> penny to have a tax guy that's going to help you with your taxes, especially if you're similar to me where this maybe isn't your full-time job, even if you're progressing towards that and you're just a, a hobbyist like I am making a little bit of money with some jobs here and there, get a tax guy. It is worth it. It is worth the expense of a tax guy to help you simplify this. I tried it a few times myself and the time and headache of figuring it all out and, and making it all go was not worth it to me. Maybe you're more familiar with tax code and, and you're more comfortable with the accounting stuff there to make that work than I was. But man, I don't want to deal with that. So I really love having that. The the tax guy use our spreadsheet. It's simple, super simple spreadsheet thing. We just print it out and, and it works great. Uh, as to credit cards, I don't take credit cards. So we get payments from our shoots by check, cash, and really most have wanted to pay using PayPal or Venmo recently. That's I haven't had yeah. any, I haven't had anyone pay with check or cash for a while. They all want to use uh, Venmo in particular, so we do Venmo. We're not dealing with large sums of money here. That could become a problem with Venmo in particular. You can have like people say they didn't get what they wanted and they'll take the money back. And it's there. There are some possibilities for problems if you're talking about large sums of money, or people may not want to do it with large sums of money. They need may need to get it on a credit card so they can make payments towards it. So uh, anyway, I don't take credit cards. I just do that, and that's my solution. So Connor, what's the real answer? <laughs> How do you do bookkeeping, credit card payments, all that? So, so first thing, I definitely want to to back up what you were saying about um, get a tax professional when it comes to tax season. It makes life so much easier, and it sucks paying a person as much as tax professionals often want for small business um, related returns, but. Uh, I, I can say, I think that last year, just for experiment's sake, I went through and did all of my paperwork through um, TurboTax uh-huh. and did everything as if I was going to file and just held off from filing it, just so I could compare that to how much am I saving with my accountant versus what I put into TurboTax. And the difference was a matter of like $4,000, wow. $5,000, something like that, that my accountant was able to, to save me. And I'm assuming my accountant isn't crooked. She right, seems right. pretty great. So, <laughs> so I think that she's just a, a bit better at finding ways to save me money in that way and that worth every penny that I've spent with her. So when it comes to accounting software, I, I really love wave apps. So it's okay. wave accounting, um, wave apps. You're able to, to do card processing, invoicing, estimating. Um, they even have services that you could pay somebody else to do bookkeeping for you. The bookkeeping is not terribly hard. You just have to go through and make sure that all your statements are correct and filed in the right place. The main thing that I would say as far as a routine goes is make sure you're doing this monthly, if not quarterly. Um, this last year, I was pretty bad about that and did most of the first half of the year around the mid year point and didn't quite do all of it and then did most of the second year right after the new year second half of the year and that was painful and just not great that this is the first year that i've been quite as lax as i am and i've already set reminders on my phone for every month now i am going through and keeping track of everything because most of the card payments come through it just tracks through your bank account Uh, most of your um, payments and and 
invoices and everything come through with no problems at all. It kind of has whatever place it is. And then you have a lot of stuff that's just like card processing kiosk. And you go, oh, what what did I spend twelve fifty on in February? I don't know. So I have to, to <laughs> either just discount that, take it out, which is what I do because I want to make sure that I'm being as honest as I can with my tax. So I'm not counting that as an expense for my business now because I was dumb. Um, whereas I could have said, oh, yeah, like that that was when I went and got batteries at the gas station. Uh-huh. So that's what that 1250 is. If I do it at the end of the month, it's really easy. It's not that time consuming. So I don't know why I put it off this last year, but this year I will be better. As far as services go, um, I really like Wave Apps because all of the money that they make off of you is just from their card processing fees. Okay. Versus some other services such as QuickBooks, FreshBooks. Um, I, there's any number of them. I can't remember everyone that can do it, but um, I, I just really like wave apps because the card processing fee is about the same as your square uh-huh. or Stripe or um, PayPal fees. It's, it's a, a, in fact, I think it's a little bit lower than a couple of them, but it's around that slightly under two and a half percent, whatever. I don't even remember. I have it. I should probably look at that and see <laughs> what I'm paying. Um, does but, it, so does it, oh. do you have like a, like square, do you have something you use on your phone to swipe the card and take it at the time you're doing the, or, or is it like invoice later, they get a link so, and pay it? Yeah, it, it's totally invoice layer. Uh, later, they can click on a link and pay it. Okay. Um, there is a card in that the mobile app. There is a place where you can input the card oh, info okay. if you want to. Um, so I, I have one client that, because of their corporate structure, they're not allowed to, to pay online. So they have to call me over the phone, and then I can put it in on my side. Uh. And I'll put in the card numbers and everything there. Um, but it, it it also allows for, you know, if somebody wanted to pay with a check, they can send you a check and you're able to just say, hey, I got this check. Gotcha. Thumbs up. Um, one, one thing of note with this um, to keep in mind is that if you are using the invoicing services with Wave accounting apps, they will pull both the money that hits your account after they have paid, like after you've been paid, once the money hits your account, it will pull that transaction from your bank account and count that as income. And then they will also count the invoice as income. So so when uh, I was going through at the end of the year, I was like, oh, wow, I made way more money than I thought I did. And then realized, <laughs> it was oh, no, I didn't. Counted. Yeah, because yeah. it was double counting everything. I'm like, man, where did all that money go? I didn't realize that I was spending thousands and thousands a month. Nope, I wasn't. It, it was just dumb um, not keeping up with bookkeeping. So that's something that if you choose this service, I imagine many of the other services might not be so intuitive um, in the same way. So just be careful of that, that you're counting your income in the same way line and not double counting anything at any point um but did i answer all of her I questions so. um <laughs> okay. a couple more thoughts come to mind um yes so so one i know erica uses quickbooks um yes. even though she also uses 17 hats for yes which includes some bookkeeping features but she uses quickbooks because that's what her accountant wants. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably an important aspect of this. Um, so if, if, Brianna, if you don't have an accountant that's helping you, a tax professional that's helping you, um, you might want to consider that. And then you might want to say, what do they want you to use? Um, yeah. So, that, so they can do it. I, I'm sure it would be even easier if I used QuickBooks with my tax professional. Um, but... I'm opting for the free <laughs> free option, <laughs> and it's working fine. He said it's not a big deal. There's so few expenses and income pieces to it that 
it's really easy. I What I do is before meeting with him, I just send in the spreadsheet. It only takes him a few minutes and he can put this stuff into the software. And so he's fine with it for now. But yeah, if we ever got to where there was a lot more uh, to put data entry needs, then uh, then I'm sure we'd have to look at another solution, something that we'd pay for. And I'd go, I'd just find out from him, what is it you'd prefer? What would work the best? I believe that he uses Quicken software anyway on his end. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So, so well, and, and a lot of the services also have the ability to export yeah, as an yeah. Excel sheet or a PDF or sure. uh, I forget what the other file is called. Maybe a CSV. Yes. Yeah, something that they're able to, to pull in to um, their software and at least see those sure. numbers. So some accountants, my accountant has said that she doesn't really care as long as she can see the balance sheets because she does all of the like. It doesn't take that long for her to put everything in. I bring her my expense report at the end of the year. It shows all of the different categories that stuff has been broken down to. She says, no, you can't write off these meals. And I go, okay. <laughs> and then she puts in the numbers after that. And she's done pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I would definitely ask, if you're going to use an accountant in the future, I would definitely ask if they have a preference for who you use because eh, it might make things cheaper on your end. Right. Easier. Yep, exactly. And, and may, I mean, they might even offer a discount if you... For their service, the accountant's service, if you use their software, then because it yeah. makes it easy. Or you can ask for it. Be like, well, I'm willing to use it, but it's going to cost me money. So are you willing to give me a discount on the service to compensate? And yeah. maybe you won't get the whole thing back, but maybe some of it's good, good to ask. Get some money back. Yeah. All right. Let's move to our last topic before we end the show here. Um, Speedlights to strobe. So our good friend of the show, Mr. Brian Pex. He posted in the Facebook group, he said, uh, talk about moving from speed lights to strobes and the topic of coloring your light with modifiers in place. A softbox on the strobe mount in particular is what he's kind of worried about saying he doesn't see any really good solutions. So I'm all, I'm kind of dabbling in strobes, strobe-ish <laughs> lights yeah. now with the Godox <laughs> AD200, um, but I haven't, I haven't used them enough to even care about doing gel work yet. Um, I think there are some decent solutions from Godox for gels that I can add because it's still it's still shaped a lot more like a flash, a speed light than it is a strobe. So I, yeah. I think I'm going to be able to find some good options for that particular thing. It's just that the that Godox AD200 is um, capable of power that is a lot higher than most speed lights. So so it's it's really fun to be trying with it. But I'm also intrigued by the, the MagMod has a softbox solution. That is not yet available, but is coming probably in the first quarter of this year. I think they're they're already behind schedule um, where they wanted it to be. But um, they specifically designed their softbox to take gels. And oh, that's yeah, cool. and and not only that, but make it easy to get in there. Like that's a, a struggle <laughs> I would have would be okay. Even though I could put something on the front of my Godox eighty two hundred really easily, it, it would either be taking the the flash out of the softbox to put it on or tearing you know through the velcro of the softbox to get in there and apply it and then have to put it back on and their yeah. their softbox is made so that it's really easy to access it and put the the gels in there so that looks like a super cool solution they're not available yet but that looks like a really good solution <laughs> but connor what what do you have to say for for brian do you have some advice for him here yeah, so the problem is when it comes to strobes, you have so many different mount types and right. so many different bulb configurations that it makes it a little, a little bit harder. With speed lights, it's pretty easy because you, you 
have the front of the shoe and you can kind of slap a tiny gel on there and put it in whatever modifier you want and that modifier will be gelled that color Um, but when it comes to to strobes it it depends on your softbox it depends on the strobe that you're using and depends on how hot your bulb is what kind of gels you have Um, so something that i don't know if people are too aware of but most gels are not heat resistant right right and (laughs) and as such when you put gels in a strobe with a constant light on they'll melt so if you're going to use strobes um with gels you're not gelling the front of the softbox you don't need to get a gigantic huge gel to get that color what you do is you place it inside as close as you can to the bulb depending on um the configuration of the softbox you have and just try and make a nice seal that the light has to pass through that that gel in order to get there so i have um well, I'll talk about it in a little bit here in my doodads, yeah. but I recently got a new set of gels that are still not heat resistant, but they're uh, it's a thicker, it, it's not that flimsy uh, gel feeling. It's kind of like a, I don't know, bendy plastic instead of uh-huh. a crinkle cellophane So more feel. heat resistant then? Um, somewhat more heat resistant. Oh, it's okay. still plastic, so it's not great in that regard. However, it makes it really easy for me to just stick down my... The softboxes that I use are an umbrella-style softbox, so it has a rod that sticks up through the middle of it. I cut a hole in all these gels, and I'm able to just kind of flop it down over that post, and it stays in place and covers with almost 100% coverage throughout the light. Makes it pretty easy not as easy as this magmod system you were talking about. I still have to take off my Velcro at the front um, and reach underneath and put it over there. Um, but that's the way that I go about doing it. In the past, I've I've used the more cellophane style gel um, that, depending on the uh, depending on the brand, you actually have like cinematic gels that are great for holding up to heat. Um, they just get pretty expensive when you're getting into larger sizes. And with that, you would just take a piece of gaffer tape that you put on the corners and then tape that. We're talking about a rectangular softbox here. Just tape that to the corners of the softbox. It doesn't stick. Um, gaffer tape doesn't stick super well to that silver interior. Um, but if you stick it to the rod, you're able to get a pretty nice seal from that. Um, and if you have those cinematic movie gels, then you can even have your constant light on. But if not, I would just turn on the light, see where my light's placed, turn it back off, and then start shooting. Gotcha. All right. Well, yeah. Let's move. Let's move on to the doodads then. Let's let's go through that. So mine. <laughs> I'm going to start with mine. Um, <laughs> it's going to be kind of an odd selection. <laughs> like I am not sure there'll even be another listener listening to us that might need this. But I'm going to talk about it anyway in case someone does. So I don't know if you heard Connor, but I had a very bad accident with my MacBook Pro. I did. It was making me very sad to see. <laughs> I spilled water on it, like a half of a, a therm. Let's see, a six, 32 ounce bottle of water. So about sixteen ounces of water went on on the on the thing, oh, and oh, I was so sick immediately, just dying. And uh, I I have actually since looked up a video because I I wondered. Well, maybe it'll be okay. This It wasn't like a whole <laughs> bowl of water. It was sitting out in the rain. Maybe it's going to be all right. Uh, I've seen a video now on YouTube of, I think it was a half an ounce of water spilled onto a MacBook Pro killed it. So it Ugh. it doesn't take much. <laughs> and I dumped a lot. So yeah, it died. It died a very bad death. Um, it didn't immediately power off which was made me hopeful initially. I was like, I immediately turned it upside down, trying to get the water out of there. And I powered, I held down the power button until it turned off. 
And I was like, oh, it stayed on. It didn't immediately turn off. So maybe I'm okay. But yeah, I dried it out. I put it in the rice. I did all that and it's dead. So oh. <laughs> I'm sure it fried the logic board, which is the very most expensive part of the computer. I can replace it. I have the tools. I've opened it up. I've taken it out. But it's going to be, um, you know, half as much as what it would take to buy a new one anyway. So <laughs> not Jeez. not worth it to to do that unless I could find I, I, a friend of mine had an idea to find a cracked one, one with a cracked screen and, um, oh. and see if I could pull like get it for cheap and then yeah. pull the logic board out of that and use it. But I haven't found any yet. So I'm going to keep watching and see. Anyway, I had a few things on the hard drive that I really wanted. And this won't be possible on newer MacBook Pros, but on the 2015 version, the SSD that was used was connected to the logic board through a socket, and you could take it out. So that means I could remove the SSD out of the the computer, but I needed to put it inside of something so that I could access it. And they make such a thing. It's the OWC Envoy Pro Portable Bus-Powered USB 3.0 Enclosure for Apple Flash SSDs, which is a huge name. You can go see it in the show notes. If you are in this unique situation where you have like a 2015 <laughs> MacBook Pro that died and you would love to get to the hard drive, you can open it up. You can take out the drive. It's really simple to get in there and, and do this. This is not hard. And uh, and then put it inside this little enclosure, connect it to another computer, another Mac. It would have to be a Mac, but connect it to another Mac via USB and I could get to my stuff. There wasn't much on there I needed, but at least I could pull some of the stuff off that I wanted to get off there, some documents and things, so... That, yeah. It helped me out. It was a hundred bucks, so that was expensive for this enclosure too. But it got my data, so it was worth it. All right, Connor, Sheesh. what do you have? <laughs> so my doodad, as very recently discussed, is the ten-piece colored overlay light gel transparency color film plastic sheets correction gel <laughs> light filter sheet, twelve by twelve inch ten assorted colors. Um, this is just a generic brand of uh, let's see um made by color mogu on amazon it's just some 12 by 12 inch it's a plastic sheet gel that's um they're not great for color correction um if you're looking for like color temperature orange color temperature blue even the color temperature orange that comes with this is uh, uh not not it, it's more of just a pinky orange than it is real cto color but it is fantastic for using kind of cinematic color gels that hold up and kind of hold up to their own weight really easily um that that's about it all right gels if you want some gels <laughs> i kind of included this because of brian's question yep. and thought that it would be a good recommendation for something that can go into most systems pretty easily it's a relatively large size a 12 by 12 inch versus your standard 8 by 10 and i like them a lot very good all right well hopefully that'll help brian out okay just as we're closing up the show we want to remind you masterphotographypodcast.com that's where you can find the show notes for this show, those links to those really cool products we just talked about in the doodads. Um, and and it, there's other notes in there too. Like you hear the episode, there's a little bit more to the, the stuff on the show notes. So it really would, you do yourself a favor if you went and checked out the show notes every time. Masterphotographypodcast.com. Facebook group, we've talked about Master Photography Podcast. You can go search and find that. Links to it are on the website. And then uh, you can find my work at jsharmanphotos.com. My other uh, podcast over at phototacopodcast.com. Find me on Facebook, Harmon Jeff, Twitter, Harmon underscore Jeff, and Instagram, Harmon Jeff. And all of those links are in the show notes, so you don't have to remember any of it. Connor, where can people find you? 
Um, you can find me at my website at connorhibbs.photography, on Instagram at connorhibbsphotography. Find me on Facebook at Connor H. Photo, and find my other podcast at portraitsessionpodcast.com. You probably talked about pricing a lot in that in the portrait session, right? Yeah, we've had quite a few yeah. discussions on I, that. I yes. thought I remembered that. So, yeah, if you're looking for more information, go check out Portrait Session. All right, that's going to close up the show for today. We're so glad that you listened. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you all again in another seven days. Bye-bye.